Okay, 2 Samuel 19. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word. We'll be looking at verse 1 through 4. To begin with, we'll be looking at the entire chapter this evening. The Bible says, And it was told Joab, Behold, the king weepeth and mourneth for Absalom. And the victory that day was turned into mourning unto all the people. For the people heard say that day how the king was grieved for his son. And the people got them by stealth that day into the city. And people being ashamed, um, as people being ashamed, steal away when they flee in battle. But the king covered his face, and the king cried with a loud voice, O my son Absalom, O Absalom, my son, my son. We saw last week how that Absalom's uh, insurrection had led to war between David's men and Absalom's men. Absalom had been uh, had taken over the palace and uh, had uh, gone into war with David. And Joab would end up putting three darts through the three arrows rather through the heart of Joab as he swung from a tree by his hair, and uh, the war would be over as the uh, leader of the insurrection was dead. And instead of this being a time of rejoicing that David had regained the nation, instead David turned it into a time of great sorrow. And the title of the sermon tonight will make more sense as we get into the passage, but the title of the sermon is this, What is in the heart of a shepherd? What is in the heart of a shepherd? David was the shepherd king. He was the shepherd king. He was brought by God. Uh, to bring the country to a place of healing, and God had put within his heart that of uh, a shepherd. And so what is in the heart of a shepherd? Now, I'm not standing up here tonight to talk just about David's heart, nor am I standing up here tonight to talk about what's in my heart. The word pastor and shepherd mean the same thing. They're synonymous. I'm not just here to talk about David or those who lead a church. I'm here to talk about anyone who holds a position of God-given authority. If you hold any sort of uh, God-given authority, then God has made you a shepherd over your own flock. And so what is in the heart of a shepherd ought to be in your heart. And so let's uh, pray tonight. I'm going to give some introductory thoughts, and then we'll get verse by verse into the chapter. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for how it ministers to us. Lord, it encourages encourages us when we're down. It motivates us when we're uh, slothful, it, it corrects us when we're in the wrong, it scalds us when we're living in sin and rebellion. Uh, Lord, it, um, it picks us up when life has uh, been hard on us, and we're grateful for it. Tonight, may it encourage us, may it show us, may it teach us. Thank you for a church that loves the Bible, where the Word of God is preeminent and held high. May it not just be that for our church corporately, but Lord, may your Word reign and rule in our hearts individually. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. What a journey we have been on studying the life of David. We have followed him from the shepherd's field to the battlefield. We, uh, from slaying lions and bears to slaying Goliath. We have watched David rise to power and popularity under his father-in-law, King Saul, only to be pushed into exile and then be hated. And uh, we watched David uh, go uh, through quite a, a roller coaster ride, if you will, of ups and downs. And then David would learn how to trust God with his life while in living in the desert in caves and would uh, build deep loyalties with men who would, uh, were labeled the outcast of Israel's society. We watched David ascend from fugitive status living in the land of Philistia, Gath, in particular the city of Ziklag. He would be brought out of Ziklag to be made king of Hebron for seven and a half years, only later to be elevated to king over all of Israel. David would regain the territory lost to the Philistines. He would conquer Jerusalem and make it the capital of the country. He would then move the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem and uh, conquer uh, neighboring countries that posed a threat and built Israel's wealth and dominance and earned great uh, favor under a unified Israel. But then David would make a very bad decision that would bring great pain and suffering to the entire nation that ill-fated night he brought Bathsheba into the palace and committed an affair had an affair with her and under uh, upon her pregnancy he would have her husband Uriah 
killed in battle, he would then marry Bathsheba to cover up his wicked sin. But God was not fooled. God knew the whole thing. God would send the prophet Nathan to confront David over sin and declare God's hand of judgment on David's life and that David would pay back fourfold for the little lamb that he had stolen from Uriah and fourfold he did pay. His infant son would die and then Amnon would rape Tamar and then Absalom would kill Amnon to avenge his sister's uh, rape and then Absalom would overthrow the country only to be killed in battle by David's general Joab. Did God forgive David for what he had done? Yes. Did David still have to pay the consequences for his affair, for his sexual sin? Yes, he did. For his murder of Uriah? Yes, he did. Now, David, now David, we get to 2 Samuel 19, David is a divided and broken country on his hands. The country is divided and it is broken. And David now is on the other side of Jer- other side of the Jordan River. He's uh, over there in hiding and trying to find a way back into Jerusalem. You say, well, Absalom's dead. He can move right back in. Well, hold on here. Absalom had convinced the elders of Judah and the elders of Israel to allow him to overthrow David. And so David now has to get back in good favor with the elders of Judah and Israel so that he can be brought back into the palace. It's not just as simple as Absalom's dead, David steps back into the palace. No, David has to play some politics with people who sided against him in order to get back into the palace. He has a broken country and he has a divided country on his hands. He has sown the seeds of sin and now he has to deal with its harvest. Chapter 19, we find Israel in a spiritually bankrupted state. David, as I mentioned a moment ago, is on the wrong side of the Jordan River and he's hiding where he had been hiding from his son. The elders of Israel would need to formally invite David back to be their king, but they feared doing so because many of them had sided with Absalom. Do they bring David back? Then David could have their heads chopped off or have them put to death because they had joined in on the insurrection. Oh, what a messy situation. It would take a shepherd's heart to repair this mess. So the question tonight is the title of the sermon, What is in the Heart of a Shepherd? What is in the heart of a shepherd? Before I continue and give you the five attributes I have down, by way, by, by no means is this a complete list, but the five I jot down from my observations of the chapter. Uh, before I give them to you, can I just say to you tonight that there are a lot of people who hold God-given authority who do not uh, shepherd well. They do not lead well. They do not love those under them well. Uh, they do not really care for those under them well. They care about themselves more than they care about those they've been assigned to lead. They're abusive with their language. They're abusive with their spirit. Uh, they're aggressive in a nasty way. Or they can be passive aggressive. And they will use and abuse people to build their own kingdom and what they want. And uh, they don't uh, care to respond to problems. They react. They're very reactionary. And as a result, uh, they don't lead well and they lose the heart of the people they're supposed to be leading. So David is going to show us exactly what is in the heart of of a godly shepherd. Now, I've said all along that David is a mixed bag. He did a lot of good in his life. David made a lot of mistakes in his life, and we've highlighted some of those this evening. But I'm going to tell you that uh, what I've observed in the life of David is that even when he messed up, uh, he would get on his knees and he would repent. And deep down inside, he had the heart of a good, good, godly man and wanted to lead the people forward. So I'm going to give you these five attributes, and I want you to write them down there on that half sheet you received on your way in. And I want you to just look for these as we go through the chapter tonight. The first attribute of a godly shepherd is humility. Humility. We'll see all throughout chapter 19 that David does not come in uh, to um, uh, uh, Judah and Jerusalem looking to chop off people's heads and uh, uh, punish those who join into in the insurrection and the mutiny. No, David is going to instead humble himself and he's going to handle people that wronged him 
very carefully. Notice next, another attribute of a shepherd is meekness. Meekness. Humility. How about meekness? Some have defined meekness as what? Power under control. Right? Power under control. By the way, you men that meet with me on Saturdays, I hope you're writing these down especially. All right? This, this fits right in with some of what we've been talking about. Power under control. Not someone who's just looking to put everyone on blast who disagrees with them. Are you able to handle someone who disagrees with you? You have someone who uh, maybe thinks that you handled a situation poorly and maybe they don't have all the facts and they come and, and uh, they let you know in no uncertain terms that they think you were wrong. Are you able to handle them in a way that's gracious and careful? Or are you someone who just blows up, right? Uh, we need to show meekness. Now, uh, David does not order to have each one involved in Absalom's mutiny dead, but rather he makes decisions that seem odd to someone who is more reactionary in nature. And, and this is foreshadow. I'm not going to tell you exactly uh, what I mean by this, but we're going to get into the sermon in a minute, the passage, and, and there's some real head-scratching type decisions that David makes. And there's no way that David would have been able to make these decisions had he not been a man of great meekness. Here's another attribute of a godly shepherd. How about wisdom? Wisdom. The Bible says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. I know that preaching on the fear of the Lord is not one of these topics that's going to draw a large crowd. If I were to announce that next week I'm starting a series on the fear of the Lord, I don't think anyone would sit there and go, oh man, I... That I, I've got, I've just got to show up. Uh, but if I were to announce eschatology or a, a series on the home, those two seem to be the most popular type topics. People love to hear about end time events. They like to hear about uh, uh, how uh, uh, home relationships work. But can I tell you right now that if you want to have a good home life, you'll learn how to fear the Lord and lead your family to fear the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of all wisdom. David deeply feared God, and as a result, he had the wisdom he needed to see through some difficult situations. You remember the story of Solomon, where the, the two moms are fighting over the baby? You remember the story, right? And, and they come in with the baby, and, and, and one says, no, it's mine. The other says, no, it's mine. And Solomon says, bring me a sword, right? This is not something a normal person would think of, okay? Bring me a sword, give half the baby to her, and give half the baby to her. What kind of... You know what Solomon had was great wisdom because he knew the true mother would speak up and say, no, please don't kill the baby. Just give it. And, and listen, at this point, the story has almost become uh, cliche. We know it well, but in that moment where no one had thought of this before, listen, that was genius because Solomon had great wisdom. And can I tell you that a godly shepherd, he walks with God. He spends time in the Bible and he spends time in prayer. She spends time in the Bible. She spends time in prayer. And as a result, she has God's wisdom. He has God's wisdom that flows through. And that shepherd is able to make decisions and have perception and see things that most people wouldn't even think of. There is a divine intuition where you can discern on a much deeper profound level than is humanly possible let me give you another attribute of a godly shepherd here what is in the heart of a shepherd patience patience is in the heart of a godly shepherd we have a church membership roster and according to our constitution before someone can be removed from the membership roster the pastor and an officer of the church must sit down and discuss it, agree upon it, and then send a letter to someone uh, before they're just dismissed off the membership roll. And there have been many times where I have sat down uh, with uh, an officer of the church going over the membership roster, and there's someone, especially with the pandemic, there's someone's name on there, and they haven't been to church in a very long time, and they're not returning texts and phone calls. They're not answering the door when we go by to visit, and uh, there's a, almost a cold shoulder that's there, or maybe there's some offense that's happened, and, 
and I'll say, let's not take them off quite yet. I, I, I'm praying for that person. Let's not let them go. Let's keep them on because maybe just maybe they, they come back around and they stay. And, and sometimes as a pastor, maybe I can be guilty of waiting a little too long before people are removed from the membership role. But there's a, a, a heartbeat there that says, let's be patient with people. Let's give them time to come around to the church. Uh, truth. Let's give them time to heal. Let's give them time uh, uh, for, for things to be good. A godly shepherd is patient with people and he takes more or she would take more of the approach of I'm going to influence you to do right instead of trying to force you to do right. I'm going to influence you toward righteousness. Now, if you're a parent, you need to force your kids to do right, all right, um, until they get to a certain age, especially when they're really little. But listen, if you're not, I'm not talking about parenting here. I'm talking about uh, a church ministry. I'm talking about uh, a working with a spouse. I'm talking about working with uh, people that uh, don't receive a paycheck from you. Uh, you take your time and you give them uh, the ability for God to work on them and bring them around. Here's another attribute that I think is greatly missing, especially in men today. And the fifth attribute I put down here, I see in David in this chapter, is fortitude. And if you want another word for fortitude, write down the word backbone. Backbone. I'm talking about, and by the way, women can have fortitude too. That's not just a male attribute, but it's an attribute that's missing in males. All right, you with me? More women today have backbone than men do. And it's fine for women to have backbone. But men need to grow one. Men need to get a spine. All right, guys, turn to your wife and say, can I have my spine back? All right? Get your spine. Be a man. All right? And, uh, and when I say be a man, what I mean is um, stand for something. And you don't have to be a jerk about it. Remember, we've talked about humility and meekness and wisdom and patience. And I put those four first on purpose. But at the end of the day, don't be a jellyfish. You know what I mean? Know what you believe and stand by what you believe. And be nice about it. Be kind about it. Men get up and they go to work. Guess what? Women who have a job, they get up and they go to work too, even if they don't feel good. And uh, you know what women also do? Uh, if they have babies, they get up in the middle of the night and they take care of the baby, even if they're sick themselves. There's a level of commitment there. We're not hanging out and playing video games in our parents' basement until we're 35, right? We're working, we're working jobs and uh, we're, uh, we're, we're, we're taking a stand for what we believe and we're saying no to sin and we're living for the Lord. And uh, listen, when other people come to you, at, you're a leader and other people come to you and they want to do something that you know is hurtful to them, you don't cave, you don't bow, you don't kowtow, you stand up and say, no, that's not right. That would take us in the wrong direction and we're going to go in this direction. And you don't have to be mean about it, but you need to have some fortitude. And so we'll see humility. Humility, meekness, wisdom, patience, and fortitude out of the life of David. I think if we formed a committee to sit and study the chapter and we had a, uh, some, some brainstorming and some more discussing, we could probably come up with three, four, five other attributes from David here. But those are the five I noticed. Let's jump in here tonight and uh, let's look at David as the shepherd king. Now, uh, before I give you point one, I want, I want to make this point to you. David labeled Israel's shepherd king. Now, please hear, this is critical to the introduction of the sermon and you understanding this chapter, okay? David's been called the, what? The shepherd king. Say it with me, shepherd king. And now, at this point in the narrative, David would need to be the nation's shepherd in order to reestablish himself as the king. You see that? David would have to do some work as a shepherd before he could gain back the throne and get to Jerusalem. Many want the power to lead and call the shots. They want position, but they are not willing to take the attitude of a godly shepherd. Right? Beat their chest. I'm in charge. You do what I say. How about be a good shepherd and people will put you in charge and you won't have to beg for it. You won't have to beg for authority. You won't have to demand uh, subservience. They will naturally follow you because you are a shepherd, uh, you, uh, you husbands in here tonight, love your wives and lead them with a loving heart. Uh, learn how to love them. Learn how to care for them. You parents in here tonight, you lead your children with a backbone, and uh, but you love them. And uh, you, you love them by being firm with them, especially as they get older. The older they get, sometimes the more firm you have to be. But you love them and you lead them forward and you be a shepherd. And that helps establish you as a king, if you will. So uh, uh, do you hold a position with God-given authority? How many of you here tonight would say, I hold 
hold some position with God-given authority. If that's you, would you hold up your hand? I hold some position with God-given authority. Then the sermon tonight is for you. You hold a position with God-given authority. Then we need to work on humility, meekness, wisdom, patience, and fortitude. So uh, uh, are these things in your heart? Where can you grow? So let's look at four main thoughts out of Second Samuel 19 as we consider this question. What is in the heart of the shepherd? Notice point number one, David's disposition. David's disposition. Get a pen out and uh, let's get going. Anybody need a pen? I'll throw it at you. Anybody need a pen? No excuses. All right. Everybody got, got what they need. Okay. David's disposition. And so we come to um, chapter 19. Now in chapter 18, the word news is given to David, the very end of the chapter, the last verse of the chapter, news is given to David that Absalom has died and uh, he just breaks down and weeps. And that same sorrowful heart carries over into chapter 19. So we're looking at David's disposition. Notice letter A, his sorrow, his sorrow. Look at verse number one. And it was told Joab, behold, the king weepeth and mourneth for Absalom. Look down at verse four. Look down at verse four. But the king covered his face and the king cried with a loud voice, O my son Absalom, O Absalom, my son, my son. David was very good at many things, but one thing David was not very good at was being a dad. David made a mess with his kids. And uh, part of that was because David had so many wives and he was so spread thin with trying to run a country and be a dad. But there are times where David was too hard on Absalom and there were times where David was too soft on Absalom. And Absalom had turned into a total rebel, had uh, led a war against his own dad with the intent of killing his dad. And uh, David ordered his men, he said, deal gently with my son. And Joab killed Absalom. Now, I was talking to a church member this afternoon about Joab. Joab might be one of the most controversial figures in the entire Bible. Uh, you study the life of Joab and you, you look at who he was. Joab, some people love Joab, some people hate Joab. Those who are Bible theologians and nerds and study him out. Uh, was Joab wrong to kill Absalom? Some say yes. Yes, he was. He had been ordered by the king not to do it. But was that the right military decision to make i think it was had absalom been caught alive and brought back things would have been far more messy for david afterwards uh, what would have david done with him what have his soft heart uh, caved and given in and then you have the people and uh, their opinion had been turned and and that would not have totally put down the insurrection but uh, joab uh, killed absalom he squelched the mutiny and now david is stricken with sorrow. Now, I think, if I speak to the parents in the room tonight, I think any parent knows or has a good idea of how, or how David felt. Can you imagine losing your, the heart of your son to this level and then finding out the worst news that your son's been killed in battle? I've got a son sitting right down here. I can't imagine going to war against Matthew. And having uh, his life, him coming after my life, and me having to send out men to fight against his guys and then get the news that my son has been killed or your child's been killed. I think everyone here who's a parent can understand why David was heartbroken. But David forgot that, yes, while he was a dad, he was also a king and a leader, and his people needed him. Letter A, we see his sorrow. Letter B, we see his army's shame. His army's shame. And. Uh, we'll get to verse 5 in a minute. In verse number 5, Joab tells David, you are shaming your soldiers. Actually uses that very word. But look with me at verse number 2. And the victory that day, the victory that day was turned into mourning unto all the people. For the people heard say that day how the king was grieved for his son. And the people got them by stealth that day into the city as people being ashamed Steal away when they flee into battle. You see there, the Bible says they snuck into the city and that they were ashamed. They were ashamed. We see the shame here. Most every time, and I want you to understand what I'm about to say, is so critical. 
most every time we make a choice, there are what I call unintended consequences that come along with it. Unintended consequences. It doesn't matter what it is. You're looking at your cell phone in a red light. You're the first one at the traffic light. And you're looking at your cell phone and that light turns green and there you are sitting there and everyone behind you is honking. You don't know who now you're going to make to catch the light behind you and how that could totally change the course of their life. Right? Now maybe not, but that very well could happen. The littlest things that you do. You put off some important task till later and all of a sudden someone falls and gets hurt or some accident happens and here you have made a mistake or you've done something and it's caused unintended consequences. David sorrowing over his son had brought about these unintended consequences of his entire army uh, feeling very uh, confused, right? They'd gone out and put their life on the line for David to fight this battle. And now, now David is sad when they won. Instead of rejoicing over their victory, they're weeping over their victory. That's confusing. We won a battle, but now we're supposed to be sad. And can you imagine how that would have made you feel if you had put your life on the line for David? You win a battle for him and now you're forced to weep and sorrow in your victory? Now, we live in an era of politics. I intentionally stay away from politics. Uh, I don't really follow politics much myself, and so that helps me stay away from it. Um, But I do know enough about politics to know that President approval ratings are a thing, right? And there are polls taken on the president's approval rating. I don't know that our president has a very high approval rating, but, you know, I wasn't a big, uh, that didn't reflect in, in, the, in the elections uh, this past week. However, the president's approval rating is not real high, and, and that's pretty normal at, at this point in a president's presidency that the approval rating would not be very high. What do you think David's poll numbers were right now? They were lower than Mr. President Biden's poll numbers were. David was not well liked. I mean, enough of Israel had joined Absalom's side and run him out of town. And you have a small fraction of the people that stick to David. And now David is making them feel ashamed over winning a battle for him. Come on, David. You're not helping yourself very well. We see his army's shame. Let her see. We, speaking of David's disposition, we see his scolding. His scolding. Joab was the um, tough love right now that David would need. Look at verse 5 and look at the harsh rebuke. If I could use the word excoriation. Joab is going to absolutely put David on blast. He's going to rip his face off. Look at verse 5. And Joab came into the house of the king and said, Thou hast shamed this day the faces of all thy servants, which this day have saved thy life, and the lives of thy sons and of thy daughters, and the lives of thy wives, and the lives of thy concubines. If thou lovest thine enemies, in that thou lovest thine enemies, and hatest thy friends, for thou hast declared this day that thou regardest neither princes nor servants. For this day I perceive that if Absalom had lived, and all we had died this day, then it had pleased thee well. Now therefore, arise, go forth, and Speak comfortably unto thy servants, for I swear by the Lord, if thou go not forth, there will not tarry one with thee this night, and that will be worse unto thee than all the evil that befell thee from thy youth until now. Wow. He says, listen, you've got a bunch of people out there who don't like you, and right now they think that you love your enemies and hate your friends, and if Absalom had lived and all of them had died, the perception is you would have liked that, you would have rather had that, and listen, man, you're going to be a lonely, bitter old man who's off by yourself, and no one's going to like you anymore if you don't pick it up and put yourself together and go up there and comfort your soldiers that fought on your behalf. Is that what David needed to hear? Yes, it is. Joab was 100% correct. Now, not everyone appreciates Joab's style, but King David needed Joab to make the hard decisions. I just want to say this evening, be thankful for people in your life who are willing to look you square in the eye and tell you when you're wrong. Be thankful for people like that. 
Be grateful that people can look you in the eye and say, I don't like the direction that you're going. I don't like your attitude. I don't like how you're behaving. And if you don't turn it around, you're going to hurt a lot of people. Don't blow those folks off. Don't have, who are you to tell me? Maybe you need to stop and take a half step back and say, you know what? You're right. One thing I'll say about David is that when a prophet or a general got in his face and told him when he was wrong, David had enough humility to own it and recognize it. You remember when Nathan stuck his finger in David's face and said, Thou art the man? David put his head down and he wept because David knew Nathan was right. And here Joab is telling David something hard and David handles it accordingly. David knows that Joab is correct. Number one, David's disposition. Number two, speaking of the heart of a shepherd tonight, look at David's diplomacy. David's diplomacy. David would take Joab's hard advice. He would pick himself up. He would clean up his appearance. He would get to work repairing a fractured country. Look at verse number 8. 2 Samuel 19, look at verse number 8. The Bible says, Then the king arose and sat in the gate. And they told unto all the people, saying, Behold, the king doth sit in the gate. Now make note of that, because I'm going to read down through verse 10, but I want to come back to that, the king sitting in the gate here in just a moment. And all the people came before the king, for Israel had fled every man to his tent. And all the people were at strife throughout all the tribes of Israel. Notice that. We're going to come back to this thought at the end of the sermon. But look here. All the people were at strife throughout all the tribes of Israel. So there's all kinds of infighting in the country saying, The king saved us out of the hand of our enemies, and he delivered us out of the hand of the Philistines, and now he has fled out of the land for Absalom. And Absalom, whom we anointed over us, is dead in battle. Now, therefore, why speak ye not a word of bringing the king back? Here's what I want you to notice tonight. Notice it says the king sat in the gate. Where was Absalom when he stole the hearts of the people? He was was sitting at the gate. He was sitting at the gate, ministering to the people, stealing their hearts. Where was David while Absalom was sitting in the gate? He was hiding in his palace. Now watch this. David had a shepherd's heart as he was sitting in the palace, but no one could see it or understand it because he was not with his people. You can have a heart of gold, but if you don't interact with people, it doesn't matter. You hear me tonight? You can be a loving, godly, caring, meek, humble, uh, patient, wise A person with a good backbone. But if you're not a people person and you're not willing to get down with the people and spend time with them and be with them and let them see your heart and have exposure to you, it just really doesn't matter. It just really doesn't matter. David was in the palace while Absalom was in the gate. And the very first thing David does after he cleans up his appearance is he goes and he sits in the gate so the people can be exposed to being gifted. Write this down tonight. Shepherds smell like the sheep. Shepherds smell like the sheep. You can't say that you're a good shepherd if you're not willing to be among your sheep. Shepherds smell like the sheep. They're down in the uh, trenches with them. They're leading them. They're holding them. They're comforting them during the hard times. They're uh, rejoicing when they rejoice. They're weeping when they weep. And had David been doing that uh, while Absalom was stealing the heart of the people, Absalom would have been able to steal the heart of the people. And David slouched on the job, and as a result, he lost the country. Shepherds smell like the sheep. You've been given God-given authority. Your people need to know you. Parents, your kids need to spend time with you. Uh, They need your T-I-M-E. You keep your finger on the pulse of those kids and make sure that they get you and you get them. And by the way, if your cell phone's in your hand, they're not getting you. You hear me tonight? Put your cell phone away and watch these kids. When my kids were little, I'd take them to the park and I'd sit on the park bench and I'd watch my kids go down the slide and back up the playground and I'd see these other kids saying, Mom, Mom, Mom. And you know what Mom was doing? Scrolling through Facebook on her phone. 
We live life in our phone and our own kids have to beg for our attention. You're a husband tonight and God's called you to lead your wife. Hey, listen, you spend time with your wife. You invest in your wife. You care for your wife. Uh, you have a humble, meek spirit that's wise. And uh, you make sure that you have a backbone to lead. And don't let her run you. Uh, you lead uh, the home. But by all means, you're in the trench. You're working with him. Uh, you have a ministry here at the church. And you oversee people. Boy, uh, uh, you say, I'm an introvert. Put the introvertedness away and learn how to get in the ditch. And smell like the sheep. Learn how to live in the field where the sheep are. David, the very first thing he did was he went and he sat in the gate. So the people could begin to experience who he was once again. David had the heart of a shepherd while Absalom was stealing the heart of the people. But they could not see his heart because he was hiding in the palace. Letter A, we see David's instruction to the elders. What David did next is diplomacy personified. Now... Watch this. Before I read the verses, David knows that the elders have a problem with him and he has a problem with the elders. Remember where Absalom went when he started his revolt. How many of you remember? He left Jerusalem and he told David, he said, I've got to go to a city to pay tribute to God that starts with an H. Who remembers the name of the city? Hebron. There it is, Hebron. Who was in Hebron? The elders of Judah resided in Hebron. You remember when uh, Judah made David their king and uh, uh, Israel, the, the other ten tribes, made uh, Saul's son their king? David ruled in Hebron because that was where the elders of Judah resided. And so Absalom had gone to Hebron and had worked out a coup with the elders of Judah and had overthrown David's right to uh, be king. And so now the same elders need to invite David back in. David is not on speaking term with the elders. And so what does David do? He goes to the priests and he tells, he instructs the priests on what to tell the elders. The priests are the middlemen. Look at verse number 11. And King David uh, sent to Zadok and Abiathar the priest, saying, Speak unto the elders of Judah, saying, Why are ye the last to bring the king back to his house? Seeing the speech of all Israel uh, is come to the king, even to his house, ye are my brethren, ye are my bones, uh, and my flesh. Wherefore then are ye the last to bring back the king? David had maintained a good relationship with Abiathar and Zadok. By the way, have a good relationship with the preacher. Amen? That's important. Uh, I say this, uh, I say this uh, just to make a, a, a generic observation, but I have noticed that since I've been the pastor of White Oak Baptist, I've done far more funerals for people I don't know than people I know. That's a sad statement. That's a sad statement. I get called probably once every six weeks to go do a funeral for people who have no uh, direct tie into this church. Boy, when I die, I sure hope there are a lot of preachers who know me and can stand over me and be able to, uh, from a broken heart, preach my funeral. And um, I think it's a sign of where our culture is, that people die and they don't even know a preacher. They've got to call some random stranger. I would hate to die and have some random stranger stand over me and say last words. And here David goes to the priests, and the priests know him well, and the priests are able to play mediator because they, David had favor with the religious leaders of the country. So David instructs or coaches the priest on how to get the elders of Judah to invite him back to be their king. This is diplomacy. The elders of Judah and all of Israel were in a really tough spot. As I shared, they sided with Absalom. And now David needed a way to get them to invite him back. So what David did next was head scratching for many. I believe it was a, a stroke of genius and a stroke of great wisdom. Okay, letter B. Let's look at this one. His invitation to Amasa. His invitation to Amasa. Now, if you're following the storyline, you know who Amasa is. Amasa was the general of the army for Absalom. Amasa led the insurrection at war against David. And David is getting ready to promote Amasa and make him his general instead of Joab. Why would he do this? Why would he take a man who was just trying to kill him and make him his own general? 
This is where I believe that godly wisdom comes into play. Others say it's insane. You be the judge. Look at verse 13. David tells the elders, David tells the priest to tell the elders, and say to Amasa, Art thou not of my bone and of my flesh? And from my studies and what I've gathered, Amasa is the nephew of David. God, do so to me, and more also, if thou be not captain of the host before me continually in the room of Joab. So now David is going to demote Joab, who's been his general the entire time he's been king, and he's going to put in Joab's place Amasa to be the general. Now, why did he do this? Well, before we get into Amasa, let's talk about Joab for just a minute. Why did David demote Joab? Now, I will tell you that my answer to that question is speculatory, but I believe it's a logical um, uh, explanation, okay? Joab had gained far too much power over time. Far too much power over time. In fact, one passage of Scripture a little prior to this tells us that Joab had ten armor bearers. He had gained so much power, he had ten men around him to keep him safe. And Joab grabbed at power every chance he could, and Joab was bold. And I think David felt like he had a little bit of a monster on his hand, and Joab was becoming too bold and at losing his reverence for the king. Number two, Joab had killed Absalom against David's orders. For David, that was enough. Now, for me and you... We can logic why Joab made the right tactical decision. But for David, you killed my boy. Right? There's an emotional thing there where David just wasn't okay with that. He looked Joab in the eye on his way out of the city and said, deal gently with my son. And Joab put three darts through the boy's chest. Are you beginning to understand why David demoted Joab? And the third reason is that Joab had just excoriated the king in his sorrow. David wasn't real happy about that, I don't think. Well, we read from verse 5 down through verse 7 where Joab just like, like, like nails David with his words to the wall. I think for David that was the final straw. So he demotes Joab. Now, I think we can all understand why he would want to demote Joab, but why would he then want to promote Amasa who had just joined up with Absalom to kill him and overthrow the throne? This is my speculation. All right, again, I think it's logical, but it's my speculation. All right? Uh, by David promoting Amasa, it sent a message of a truce with the elders of Judah and Israel. It was like extending amnesty to the elders of Judah. I'm sure they're thinking, if we bring David back in here and make him king, I mean, he's going to do like an investigation, and he's going to like figure out which one of us joins sides with Absalom. He's going to have us killed. Can we really make David king again? And by David saying, I'm going to make Amasa my general, he was in essence saying, I provide an amnesty and a pardon to all of you. Now, I think personally, there's a lot of wisdom in what David's doing right here. And if you want to find out what happens to Amasa, read chapter 20. It's quite, we'll look at it next week. It's, David didn't kill him, but he dies, okay? Uh, number two, it gave them a symbolic assurance that David would not seek vengeance once back on the throne. So was this a risky move by David's part to take Amasa and make him his general? Yes, it was. But in it, we, can, we, can, we, we get God's wisdom at work through the heart of the shepherd king. Did it work? Look at verse 14. Did it work? I think it worked. So David sends the priest to say this and to promote Amasa and immediately look at this response of the elders. And he bowed the heart of all the men of Judah, even as the heart of one man. So that they sent uh, this word unto the king, Return thou and all thy servants. So the king returned and came to Jordan. And Judah came to Gilgal to go to meet the king, to conduct the king over Jordan. Did it work? Oh, it worked. They, they uh, got the message from the priest and immediately they said, Come on home, David. We'll put you back on the throne. Now, the elders of Judah accepted this olive branch and moved to have him restored as king. The elders of Judah would renew their relationship with David. Look here. Look back at verse 15. Where did they meet David? Where did they go to renew this relationship? They met at Gilgal. Now, Gilgal is a place of great significance because Gilgal is where the Israelites encamped with Joshua before they took down what? The walls of Jericho. 
You remember the story where they marched around Jericho once a day, and then they go back to camp, and then come back and march around and go back to camp, and then seven times on the seventh day and blow the trumpets and that falls down? They were camped at Gilgal. And then uh, Samuel, uh, he anointed Saul to be king where? At Gilgal. And now David's here, and he's being renewed as the crown, and quite possibly renewing his covenant as king here in that same place of Gilgal. David is exercising diplomacy, and his diplomacy is coming from a shepherd's heart. Number three, notice David's discernment. The plot thickens. The plot thickens. Remember Shimei from last week? Remember Shimei? David's leaving town, and Shimei is a Benjaminite of the tribe of Saul. And what does he do? He picks up stones and dirt, and he throws them at David. He curses at him. He says, you're a bloody man. And uh, David's uh, right-hand man wants to take off his head. And David says, no, 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 don't do that. The Lord has allowed this to happen. Well, now that Absalom is dead, oh, Shimei, he, um, he's got some makeup to do before he gets killed. Letter A, we see uh, David's pardon of Shimei, his pardon of Shimei. Look at verse number 16. And Shimei, the son of Gera, a Benjaminite, which was of Bahurim, hasted and came down with the men of Judah to meet King David. So he hears that there's, a, there's this agreement that's been reached. David's going to be brought back. The men of Judah are on their way, and uh, Shimei hurries ahead of them. And there were a thousand men of Benjamin with him, and Ziba, the servant of the house of Saul, and his fifteen sons, and his twenty servants with him, and they went over Jordan before the king. And there went over a ferry boat to carry over the king's household, and to do what he thought good. And Shimei, the son of Gera, fell down before the king as he was come over Jordan, and said unto the king, let not my Lord impute iniquity unto me, neither do thou remember that which thy servant did perversely the day that my Lord the king went out of Jerusalem, that the king should take it to his heart. For thy servants, a servant doth know that I have sinned, therefore behold I am come uh, the first this day of all the house of Joseph to go down to meet my Lord the king. But Abishai the son of Zariah, this is Joab's brother, answered and said, Shall not Shimei be put to death for this because he cursed the Lord's anointed? Abishai, you just want to kill people, all right? And David said, What have I to do with you, ye son of Zariah, that ye should this day be ad, uh, adversaries unto me? Shall there any man uh, be put to death this day in Israel? For, I do, uh, for do not I know that I am this day king over Israel. Therefore the king said unto Shimei, Thou shalt not die, and the king swear unto him. So this was mercy, right? David could have easily ordered to have Shimei had dead, his head lopped off. But David didn't do that. You know why David didn't do that? Because he knew right now killing his enemies was not going to help him get back to the throne and restore peace in Jerusalem. You know what David had? Listen up. This is a very important point. You know what David had? David had enough security in himself. To not need to do that. So many people are poor leaders because they're insecure in who they are. They can't handle criticism because they are so insecure in who they are. Someone comes and criticizes you a little bit and you blow up. And, and, and I have to show my performance and I have to show you how good I am at this and how much better I am than you. I'm going to tell you right now, Pastor Lejeune is not the smartest guy at White Oak Baptist Church. There's a lot of you here that are a lot smarter than me. And I'm not just saying that as some sort of fake humility. I mean, I mean that with all my heart. I say some things sometimes and I get my words turned around and some of you, I just can't look at you because I'm like, oh, they're judging me. They're hard judging me right now. Okay, I know. Uh, I, I, listen, uh, some of you here, I sit down and converse with you and you just have a wealth of knowledge I don't have. But you know what? I don't need to be the smartest person at White Oak Baptist Church. I don't aim to be the smartest. I aim to be the most spiritual. And I aim to lead you spiritually. And you know what? I don't always succeed at that, but that's my effort. David did not need to have Shimei's head chopped off to establish himself as king. David said, I know I'm king. I don't need to do this to this poor guy. He showed him mercy. Now, what would happen to Shimei? We're not going to get into it because we won't make it that far into 
1 Kings, but David on his deathbed would give a watch list to Solomon and say, keep an eye on these guys. There were a couple of names on that list from this story right here. Shimei was on the watch list. Joab was on the watch list. David said to jo- uh, Solomon, keep an eye on Joab. He's a loose cannon. But he also said, keep an eye on Shimei. And so Solomon put Shimei under some form of house arrest. And Shimei would defy the house arrest. He would leave town and Solomon would have him killed. What do we learn from Shimei? He could not respect authority. And eventually it led to his own demise. So we see David's pardon of Shimei. Letter B, we see his pact with Mephibosheth. His pact with Mephibosheth. Back in chapter 16, you may remember Ziba had lied to David and declared that Mephibosheth had joined the rebellion and refused to leave the palace. David made a rush decision and gave all of Mephibosheth's property to Ziba. Now Mephibosheth is going to make the 20-mile journey from Jerusalem to the Jordan River to explain to David what had actually happened. Look at verse number 24. Verse 24. And Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, came down to meet the king and had neither dressed his feet nor trimmed his beard nor washed his clothes from the day the king departed unto the day he came again in peace. And it came to pass when he was come to Jerusalem to meet the king that the king said unto him, Wherefore, wentest not thou with me, Mephibosheth? And he answered, My lord, O king, my servant deceived me. That's Ziba. For the servant said, Ziba said, I will saddle me an ass, and that I may ride thereon and go to the king, because thy servant is lame. And he hath slandered thy servant unto my lord the king. But my king, but my lord the king is an angel of God. Do therefore what is good in thine eyes, for all of my father's house were dead. Uh, were but dead men before uh, my lord the king. Yet didst thou set thy servant among them that did eat at thine own table? What right there, uh, therefore have I yet to cry any more unto the king? And the king said unto him, Why speakest thou any more of thy matters? I have said thou and Ziba divide the land. Well, that's not what he said. He said that Ziba could have the land. And now he's saying divide the land. And Mephibosheth said unto the king, Yea, let him take all, for as much as my lord the king is come again. And peace unto all thine house. And so again, David is being diplomatic. He had made a rush decision on his way out of town. He had given all of the property to Ziba. And now he's saying, you guys split it. You guys uh, uh, split it in half. And Ziba can own half of it. And Mephibosheth, you own the other half. And Mephibosheth says, King, listen, I don't need the land. I just need to know that me and you are on good terms. He can have it all. I want to know that you and I are on right terms. Letter C, notice his proposition to bar bar. Uh, Barzillai, 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 there it is, Barzillai. Now, there are entire sermons written from 31 to 40. We're just going to read the verse. I've got a couple of comments, but there's a lot here. I encourage you to go back and look at it later. Barzillai, by way of introducing the passage quickly here, Barzillai owned the property where David would stay while he was on the run from, uh, from Absalom. Barzillai showed a lot of kindness to David. Barzillai is an old man. Look at verse 31. And Barzillai the Gileadite came down from Rogalim and went over Jordan with the king to conduct him over Jordan. Now, Barzillai was a very aged man, even fourscore years old, and he had provided the king of sustenance while he lay at Mahanium, for he was a very great man, very wealthy man. And the king said unto Barzillai, Come thou over with me, and I will feed thee with me in Jerusalem. Barzillai said unto the king, How long have I to live that I should go up with the king into Jerusalem? I am this day fourscore or eighty years old, and can I discern between good and evil? Can thy servant taste what I eat or what I drink? Can I hear any more the voice of singing men and singing women? Wherefore then uh, should thy servant be yet a burden unto my lord the king? Thy servant will go a little way over Jordan with the king, and why should uh, the king recompense it me with such a reward. Let thy servant, I pray thee, turn back again, that I may die in mine own city. You can understand anyone who wants to die in the city they grew up in, and be buried by the grave of my father and my mother. But behold, thy, my, thy servant Chimham, let him go over with my lord the king, and do to him what shall seem good unto thee. And the king answered, Chimham shall go over with me, and I will do to him that which shall seem good unto thee. And whatsoever thou shalt require of me, that will I do. For thee, And the people went over Jordan, and when the king was come over, the king kissed Barzillai and blessed him, and he returned unto his own place. Then the king went on to Gilgal, and Chimham went on with him, and all the people of Judah conducted the king 
and also half the people of Israel. So Brazilii had been awful kind to David during the war with Absalom. David wanted to repay him by giving him a place in the palace. This would have been a great help to David to strengthen his transjordanic ties, uh, right? And say, hey, listen, Barzillai, a man of great prominence in your region, is living in the palace with me. Uh, but Barzillai said, listen, I just want to go home and die. And he said, uh, take my servant, Chimham, and uh, let him uh, have my place. So David's shepherd's heart is being exposed to anyone and everyone who takes care to notice. He's not lopping heads. Instead, he's loving hearts. He's not rebuking. Instead, He's restoring. Let's go on to number four, and this will set the stage for next week's message. Let's notice Israel's division. Israel's division. Going all the way back to King Saul, there had been a divide between the, the tribes of Judah and Simeon and the other ten tribes of Israel. Okay, so you know, listen up, give me your attention on purpose. I know it's, a, it, it's been a long time and you've listened well. I, I need you to hear the backstory so you can understand where we're going with this, okay? This sets up next week. You get to Rehoboam, and what happens, right? The country splits. You've got the two southern tribes of Judah, Judah and Simeon, and then you've got the ten northern tribes, and they uh, operate as two separate countries. But understand that this divide goes way, way, way back, all the way back prior to even them having a king, of these tribes not getting along with each other. Now, when Saul died, Judah made David their king, and, and while the rest of uh, Israel made Saul's son their king, and there had been uh, even been a civil war fought for a time between the two sides. So David was of the tribe of Judah. That was where his family was from, of Bethlehem, Judah. Uh, when he wanted back to the throne, he did not reach out to the, the elders of Israel. He reached out to the elders of his own people, of Judah. This did not settle well with the rest of the elders. So now watch this. They're fighting over should David be king, should David not be king. And uh, David uh, extends the olive branch to the elders of Judah, and the rest of the elders of Israel find out about it, and they are not happy. Look at 41. And behold, all the men of Israel came to the king and said unto the king, Why have our brethren, the men of Judah, stolen thee away, and have brought the king and his household, and all David's men with him over Jordan? And all the men of Judah answered the men of Israel, Because the king is near of kin to us. Wherefore, then be ye angry for this matter? Have we eaten at all of the king's costs? Or hath he given us any gift? They just tried to run him out of town. Now they're fighting over him. And the men of Israel answered the men of Judah. Look here and said, We have ten parts in the king, and we have also more right in David than ye. Why then did ye despise us, then that our, that our advice should not be first had in bringing back our king? And the words of the men of Judah were fiercer than the words of the men of Israel. So they're arguing with each other. There's this fierce argument. And what is the point the Israelites' elders are making? They say, listen, you're two tribes. We're ten tribes. We have ten stakes in David. You have two. You have Judah and Simeon. We have the other ten. And you didn't even consider what we thought in bringing David back. Hey, include us next time. Except it wasn't that civil. The conversation is fierce. The men of Judah are saying, no, uh, he's from us. He's of our tribe. And we had every right to do what we did. So this is going to lead uh, to all kinds of friction and all kinds of conflict uh, uh, and, and someone else who steps up and tries to be an Absalom, if you want to get a head start, you can read chapter 20 before we get uh, to next week's message. But let me just conclude with this. To those of you with God-given authority, I want to ask you a question. Are you leading with the heart of a shepherd, or are you leading with the heart of a lion? You see, shepherds lead gently. Lions devour. Shepherds build up, lions tear down and destroy. The Lord Jesus Christ is compared to a shepherd and a lion, but a shepherd when it comes to people. Satan is compared to a lion that destroys. We're to be shepherds. We're to lead with those qualities that I mentioned at the beginning of the sermon. Read them out loud with me if you wrote them down. Ready? Humility, meekness, wisdom, Patience and fortitude. You're to be a shepherd in order to establish your authority. Hey, church, let's stay away from sin. Let's put ourselves out there and be seen, known, and understood by those who call us leaders. Remember, shepherds smell like sheep. Love the people that God has called you to love. 
and then you'll gain the credibility to lead with authority. Let's have our heads bowed, eyes closed this morning. Lord, thank you for tonight. Thank you for the message. Thank you for the word of God. We do pray, Lord, that you would prick our hearts. Show us, Lord, where we've been lazy or careless or unbiblical in our approach of leadership. Lord, convict our hearts. Show us, Lord, how we can do better. May we not take our God-given authority lightly. We stand in your place in those areas and we lead. May we do it with great carefulness. May we do it in a way that uh, tastefully represents you. Lord, give us a church full of people who care for uh, each one in front of us. In Jesus' name we pray. Let's stand to our feet.